Hey, Jay, you know, Jean Grey is kind of a lousy aunt, isn't she? Her niece and nephew are dead, dude. There's not really much aunting to be done. Yeah, but like, in general. I mean, Scott and Jean are always going to Alaska or spending time with his grandparents, and they just kind of ignore her family. Canonically, she can't even remember Joey and Galen's birthdays. She's really busy, and again, it's not like she's gonna buy them presents at this point. As mutant relatives of one of the big-name X-Men, you'd think they'd be at the front of the resurrection line. Eh, tell it to Adrian Frost. But I just realized, we're assuming that Sarah's the only one of Jean's siblings with kids. What about Roger and Liam and Julia? Huh? Uh, Jean's other siblings? Again? Huh? Well, I guess they could technically be Jean's aunts and uncles. All we really know is that Rachel once referred to them as her aunt and uncles, and she was pretty upset at the time, so she might have just forgotten to throw in great. What happened? The Gray family reunion. And Rachel wasn't invited? I mean, that's rough, but she is technically from another timeline, and— No, no, she, she was invited. So what was the problem? Everyone else got wiped out by an alien bug monster. What?! I'm Jay Adidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 412 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to actual X-Men proper, which means welcome back to Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel's still very new runs on X-Men and Adjectiveless X-Men. Miles, is it just me, or does starting these runs, and especially seeing how well they start, feel a little bit fundamentally bittersweet? Like, we know that this is gonna go badly, badly off the rails, and it's got so much promise now. Seriously, it's like watching a movie where you know the ending is gonna be super tragic, even though you're not supposed to know, like someone told you and spoiled it, and then the entire experience of watching the movie is just waiting for the terrible things to happen, and you can't really even fully enjoy the stuff on the way. Well, I say that, but I really enjoyed these issues. Yeah, likewise. They're very, very good. It's been a while since I've read this run, and I had forgotten just how fun it is at the start. You know, it's funny you say this run— but these are two runs. We're doing two issues of Kelly's Adjectiveless X-Men and two issues of Siegel's Uncanny X-Men. But you're right, they feel so cohesive. They work together so tightly and effectively. I mean, these are effectively one title. At this point, kind of, yes. I know they split apart more in the future, but right now they're cohesive when they start, and that works after such big stuff has happened before. And speaking of big stuff that happened before, we should probably dive quickly into what happened previously on X-Men. Because these runs are quite dense, and we only have so much time in a given episode. So we're coming straight out of the major crossover event Operation Zero Tolerance. That's where the militaristic, extra-governmental, anti-mutant organization, Operation Zero Tolerance, declared war on the mutants of the world in general, and the X-teams in particular. They captured half the X-Men, implanting a bomb in Cyclops for good measure, and they completely cleared out the X-Mansion of every single item in it, from the furniture to the paint on the walls just seems extra petty. I think they used nanomachines. Nanomachines. So half of the team did not get captured by Operation Zero Tolerance because they were in space, the team, not OZT. They did, however, get pulled into Antarctica onto a trial for Gambit run by a disguised Magneto. In fact, Magneto specifically disguised as bondage Viking Eric the Red, because why not? Why not? 
And during that trial, we found out about Gambit's long-foreshadowed dark secret. Remember the mutant massacre? I do. Well, turns out Gambit was not only the guy who got the Marauders together, but the one who led them to the Morlock tunnels, where they then proceeded to slaughter all of the Morlocks. Right. Uh, the Morlocks, of course, being mutants whose mutations mean that they can't visibly pass as human. At the time, they were led by Storm, and she probably should have been paying more attention, which uh, would become a trend. Which is to say, any. Abandoning Gambit in the Antarctic for his crimes, that half of the team then met up with the first half of the team back at the X-Mansion, and also ran into a few new recruits. Those are Maggot, a South African dude with an external digestive system in the form of two big armored slugs named Eenie and Meenie. Marrow, a murderous Morlock terrorist with the gross mutant power to grow extra bones and throw them at people, and whose heart Storm ripped out to stop her from killing more humans at one point. It's okay, she had another. Lastly, we have Cecilia Reyes. Cecilia Reyes, a doctor with force field powers who wanted nothing to do with mutants and their causes, but got dragged into OZT anyway because the Sentinels targeted her. Everybody worked together to get the bomb out of Cyclops, so that part worked out well. But thanks to the revelations about Gambit, the fact that the three new X-Men are not exactly team players, and Professor X's absence because he's still in super jail after the events of Onslaught, the X-Men are in a pretty rough spot. Which brings us straight into X-Men number 71, A House in Order. Written by Joe Kelly, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Art Tiber, colored by Chris Lichtner, Aaron Lucen, and Liquid, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. And the cover here... So I don't know if this counts as an example of that famous X-Men cover trope. We have Cyclops and Jean Grey wearing civilian clothes with suitcases all around them, and in the background we see the original five X-Men, including the two of them, in their Silver Age costumes all, like, faded out. Does this seem like it would fit with the cover to Uncanny number 138, where Cyclops is walking away from the team with a duffel bag, or the many, many, many covers that have referenced that since? No, I, I don't think that this is a reference to that. Oh, okay, so more of a cousin than a sibling, then. All they really have in common is that Cyclops is leaving on them. True. Well, and, uh, they have baggage. And also suitcases. Wah-wah. So that baggage probably came from the boathouse, where Scott and Jean had been living since they got married. And in there, Scott is asleep, wrapped up in bandages, while Jean is meditating in an upside-down, hovering lotus position. As we read Jean's narration. It's ironic. I've been to the ends of the universe and back raced comets around the moon, circled the globe at the speed of thought. But I still can't manage to get any quality sleep the night before a long flight. So this part's interesting, because some of those are things that Phoenix could do, not Jean herself. Now, we know Jean has Phoenix's memories by this point. We do, yeah. But it's interesting that Jean is at this point seeing the Phoenix as being her. And this, I suspect, was deliberate. Because Steve Siegel actually had planned a plot that Jean was going to become more and more Phoenix-like herself, but editorial apparently rejected it. Not until after this, though. And hints of that plotline continue into Scott and Jean's time in Alaska. That's something I really I remember from reading this for the first time. Very much so. And since Kelly and Siegel were working so closely together, we're going to see that in both of their books. I love that. I mean, this type of collaboration, this type of tight collaboration— it almost reminds me of how Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson would do things when they were the two X writers. Yeah, it's very, very cool how well the books are working together, and how well I think Siegel and Kelly's voices blend between them. For real, yeah. 
The art is also phenomenal. I love Carlos Pacheco so very much. Uh, may, may he rest in peace. Yeah, he's he was really, really terrific here. Yeah. Uh, and here he draws Jean wearing red and yellow workout clothes and boots. You know, dark phoenix colors. There are so many little hints here and there. I wonder if that was scripted and deliberate or if that was, was introduced um, by Liquid! Hard to say. Hard to say. I mean, the fact is, Jean has always looked better in red and yellow than green and yellow. Like, that was a minor fashion plot point back in X-Factor. Well, and in Excalibur. Mm, yes, that too, with Rachel Summers. Dark Phoenix just has a better costume. Hmm. Hard to say no to that. So, while Scott's sleeping, what Jean is doing is cleaning out some of the dark psychic residue of all the crap that's been going on. So, Bastion's invasion, Gambit's betrayal, Professor X's absence... And as she does so in Pacheco's art, we see small fiery birds, for instance, attacking the silhouette of Bastion. It's a good way to recap everything that's been going on if you're just jumping on at this point, because this is in some ways the start of this run. Like, it's the second issue for each of these writers, but what they did last time was the climax of what had come before. Yeah, this very much feels like the beginning. It does, yeah. And speaking of the beginning, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and the other X-Men are having it. Marrow is there grossing everybody out by eating honey out of a jar with her fingers like an adorable bear. Aww. And also pulling giant bone spurs out of her face and handing them to people. I wonder if she gets her head stuck in things a lot, because, like, its dimensions and, and edges change pretty regularly. Oh, that's true, yeah. If only she had some whiskers, some bone whiskers, which could help her figure out, like, you know, the world around her and how she fit into it. The plotline where the X-Men mistake her for a half-lump and attempt to hunt her gets pretty dark. Oh, for real. So, Beast and Cecilia are both fascinated by this whole bone growth thing. I mean, they're both doctors. Cecilia, a medical doctor, and Beast, an everything doctor. As they're talking... She tells Beast that she would... Like to examine you with it later, too. In the name of scientific research, all parts of me are at your beck and call, doctor. Immediately following a bon voyage smooch with my lady love, of course. Shall and Cecilia is, like, mortified, because she's like, no, I meant to say examine it with you, not you with it. It's like it's like when you are talking to a telemarketer or a customer service person and you end the call with I love you. I've done that before. You're implying that I do that by accident. Oh, well, well, that's a power move. Cannonball, meanwhile, is confusedly bickering with Maggot's Afrikaans dialect and Maggot's flirtation with Jean. He mentions to Marrow that, come on, she's old enough to use a spoon. It's tough to count birthdays when you're not allowed to see the sun. I really appreciate how Marrow makes everything super dark immediately. Marrow is, like, she is legitimately a fairly dark character, and she has straight up murdered a large number of people, and, like, she's kind of got it right, but she's also very, very, very up her own ass at this point. Oh, she totally is. She's such an edgelord. And not just because of all the, you know, edges. Meanwhile, the grown-ups, that is to say Storm and Wolverine, are hanging out in the bar and flirting wildly. I mean, they're technically just having a conversation, but it's really delightful, and Storm calls Logan a fresh little man. And it's lovely. The dialogue here is fun. Like, they have such a long-time dynamic, and that is channeled completely. The reason they're here, though, is that Storm is digging up a buried box under the barn, which contains her old Bronze Age tiara, some lockpicks, and some gold coins, like it's her freaking buried pirate treasure. It is a nice connection, though, to the different parts of her past. Like, the past is gone. The X-Mansion has been completely emptied out. And so it seems appropriate that not just functionally, but also psychologically, she's sort of wanting to get back to what came before. Okay, I fucking love that she does this, and I really fucking love that they also imply that she has stuff like this squirreled away all over the place. Oh god, she's like Ron Swanson, just buried gold everywhere. 
No, but it's such a good character note because, yeah, they they treat Adult Storm and her past as a thief as very, very separate entities. And, you know, they refer back to it when they need it for for story reasons or for skill reasons, but there's not really much carryover in, in habits until this point. Totally, yeah. These writers have a handle on basically all of these characters really well. One of them, of course, is Cannonball, who, as the new kid, has been assigned to take Cecilia and Maggot on a trip into town to bond. Sam is trying so hard to be grown up here. Like He has his hair pulled back into this super tight but super short ponytail that you can tell it just barely fits into. I have definitely been there with my hair before. And we've talked a lot about how Cannonball's handled in this era. Like, he was on the New Mutants for ages, he was one of their co-leaders, he was the leader of X-Force for a very long time, and now he's the youngest X-Man. And for a long time leading up to this, he's been written as way too young and way too green. Yeah, and with this, you start to see some of that resentment come through. Like, here he's seeing the X-Men handle everything just really, really badly, and you can tell he's like, wait, like, I'm the new kid? I'm the one that doesn't know what he's doing? And part of that, part of why I think it works really well here, is that what the X-Men are having trouble with is characters like Marrow, or Cecilia, or Maggot. And Sam, as much as he doesn't get along with Maggot, on X-Force, he has dealt with some very extreme teens indeed. Like, he's used to dealing with difficult personalities. He's used to dealing with violent people. And you can see the disillusionment building as he realizes, oh, these X-Men don't know what to do here. One of the themes in the Teenager X-Books, always, and yeah, up till the present day, is the realization that the adults are just making terrible choices that they do not know what the hell they're doing. That's something that was there in New Mutants. It's something we've seen in Generation X. It's something that, again, we'll continue to see through the present day. And I think this is Sam realizing that he's encountering this phenomenon again on the X-Men, when everyone is supposed to be a grown-up. Exactly, yeah. Oh, I love it. So they head into town, you know, all like bickering and bantering with each other. And as they do, along with Jean, sort of their chaperone, they see the news on a wall of TVs at an electronic store. Does that ever happen in real life? Like, this was the 90s. We were around in the 90s. Did you ever see like a giant grid of televisions where you would just happen to pass by the news? No, but we didn't really live in a city where that was a thing at any point. I mean, I guess, but, like, in the scene, Maggot's making fun of the small town they're wandering around in. Like, this isn't New York City or anything. Right. I, I assume that this is just a thing that happens on Earth-616 and will continue to happen in the present day. Okay. Everybody's got jetpacks, and people store their TVs and grids if they're in an electronic store. And no one ever uses the phone. Oh, no, this all makes sense. This all makes sense. What they see on the news, though, on this big grid of televisions, is a big, big deal. Because the big news is that the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and all the superheroes that seemingly died at the end of the Onslaught event, the superheroes whose deaths were blamed on mutants, and that led to vastly increased anti-mutant hysteria, they're back. They're alive again. They're all okay. Because, you know, the newly rebooted Avengers and FF and other books weren't selling well enough, so they all came back to the main universe. Whoops. And the collective hope has brought people together in ways that haven't happened in a very long time, as Jean says. Strangers don't seem so strange anymore. Faces don't seem so ugly. Unfortunately, a nearby homeless man is eaten alive by what seems to be maggots. Maggots, so we'll, we'll get to that. Spoiler, it's not. Back at the school, Logan is talking to the recovering Cyclops about the new kids. We've always been straight with one another, Slim. Within spitting distance of reason, of course. 
So even though you're not in the best of shape right now, I can't keep a tight lip about what I'm feeling. That's the line that launched a thousand fanfics. But for real, I do love their dialogue. How many more gambits is it going to take before we get the message, Scott? I recall a certain wild card whom I begged the professor to keep as far away from the school as possible. But instead, he offered you a hand, and I'm glad you took it. Newsflash, Scott. The prof is gone. And the last time he extended a hand, it was to Sabretooth. And he almost lost it. <sighs> I don't want to fight about this. I'm just saying. Area man just saying is all. But the next day, with everyone buoyed by the hope of the heroes having all returned, all of the non-mutant heroes being back, Scott and Jean head out on the leave of absence they're going to be taking. They're going to go try to be normal people for a while in Alaska while Scott heals. Emphasis on try. One of the great, great things about both Siegel and Kelly is that they recognize that these are people who have not interacted with non-superheroes in a really, really long time. And so Scott and Jean's, no, really, we're just the couple next door attempts never really stop being a little bit screwball comedy. How much can one banana cost? Ten fights with Apocalypse? Pretty much. Meanwhile, in Venice, Italy... Sebastian Shaw complains to his latest assistant about everything that's gone wrong with the Hellfire Club lately. Which is a lot. And he gets a message from a literally shadowy figure who stops time around them... And that message includes a small Mesoamerican-looking idol along with a letter. So this is going to be briefly revisited, but will go absolutely nowhere. This is one of the completely dropped plot threads that is a victim of editorial interference with Kelly and Siegel's runs. God damn it, I was so excited about that tiny Mesoamerican idol and, and, and a letter severe enough to startle even Sebastian Shaw. I assume he's being investigated by the IRS or something, and this is this is one of their little golden... Icons? I don't- does the IRS do that? Does the IRS send you, like, little menacing figures when they're investigating you? Oh yeah, I got audited once. There were so many menacing figures, I had to stack them all in the corner. And then at night, they came to life. And what, rifled through your receipts? Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, I keep my receipts pretty organized, so it didn't take that long. Still creepy. And meanwhile, in Cairo, Egypt... A dude collapses in blood just as he throws a package addressed to Storm onto a pile of airmail, and says that she'll be the one to beat... Ananasi, and we'll learn more about Ananasi in about half a year's worth of comics, so there's some foreshadowing for you that does go somewhere. Sooner comes X-Men number 72, Life Lessons. This issue is again written by Joe Kelly and pencil by Carlos Pacheco, with inks by Artie Bear, colors by Liquid, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. And Marrow's our narrator for this one, and she narrates over images of Storm carefully caring for her singular attic plant in the cleared-out attic of the X-Mansion. Remember, that was her greenhouse, that was her home, it was so lush, and now that's all there is. And Marrow's talking about how sun and water and light and love really don't cut it in the real world. Things grow in the dark. Hate is more powerful than the sun. Sewage replaces water. Weeds strangle flowers. No matter how many times she cuts back the wild vine, it always grows back. That's why you're here. So she doesn't have to get the grime under her nails trying in vain to clip. So she doesn't have to get dirty. Again. She is, of course, talking to Wolverine. They are in the danger room, and he is here to teach her to, like, I don't know, function around people. He points out that if Storm were the one to try to teach Marrow, she would probably just end up dead. Uh, Marrow, that is. Definitely not Storm. I love the idea of Wolverine giving people etiquette lessons. I mean, it kind of makes sense for Marrow. 
like she's so far gone she's so lowercase f feral at this point that i can understand why logan would think she wouldn't really listen to anything other than savagery well and why he's the character who gets gets sent to you know teach her to push past that because that's something that he himself has had to learn to do totally i just also want him to have to explain which fork to use (laughs) this is the dessert claw this is the salad claw exactly and man I love Marrow's lines during the fight, because Wolverine is being all sort of gruff and slightly bantery, and, and she just, she doesn't have a setting lower than 11. I'm going to dance in your blood. I'm going to string your body up by your festering intestines and- Too much yapping, not enough scrapping, kid. <laughs> Pity, if you weren't such a waste of matter, maybe we'd actually learn you how to focus that rage. I like this, Wolverine. Yeah, Kelly's Logan is enjoyably Hama-esque, like, he is clearly too old for this shit, and it works so well. And Pacheco draws the action with so much weight. Like, both of these characters are extremely agile, they're jumping all around, but their hits are really solid and deliberate, there's just this sense of impact. You mentioned that this is a too old for this shit, Logan, and I realized which version of Wolverine he reminds me the most of, or rather which version of Wolverine reminds me the most of him, because it's one that's gonna come many, many years hence, and that's Jason Aaron's. Yeah, you know, when uh, Logan is running the school, the Jean Grey school. And mm-hmm. that's interesting, because Logan kind of, sort of, ends up running the show around here for a while himself. The shit show. <laughs> and Logan also pulls no punches in addressing the Morlocks when Nero brings them up. Sure, they had it tough. Probably tougher than your average mutant. Manhattan tunnels are a tough place to set your roots. But if there's ever been one thing the Morlocks had, it was... Bondage gear. I meant to say dignity. The quote is actually dignity. They had it in spades, which is more than I can say for a certain little terrorist. You're a disgrace to your people. So what do we think about this? I mean, Marrow is awful, it's true, but she's also been through even more shit than a lot of the Morlocks. She went through the Mutant Massacre, and then she spent like a decade on the hill, this like combat-focused murder dimension run by Mikhail Rasputin. Yeah, I think that that Marrow would probably benefit significantly from a non-comic book therapist, possibly more than she would from a Wolverine, but, you know, you work with what you've got. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Emma's off in Generation X. And Marrow says as they fight that she's ready to die, but Logan refuses to finish her off. He points out that there's some part of her that wants to get better. Like, she could have just challenged Storm anywhere, and Storm obviously would have killed her. That almost happened once before. But she chose to challenge Storm here, in the X-Mansion, in this place of peace. So he's like, all right, I'm going to be your drill sergeant, and I'm going to speak in the only language you understand, but I'm going to help you improve. And she, she, you know, accepts his outreach hand, and, and gets up, and then stabs him through the neck. Cannonball, meanwhile, is actually looking for Marrow. He's standing outside the door of the room she's been staying in. You know, the one that she clawed this way to a dark ride into the door of? He feels like since nobody else is reaching out to her, he should. But Storm stops him. She's watching, and she says basically, this lady isn't worth it. Reach out to the other two new people, but not Marrow. She's a killer. Damn, Storm. Not cool. Sam agrees with me. Thanks for clearing that up. Now, if you'll excuse me... I've got to go remind myself of why I'm proud to be an X-Man. I mean, shit, he was on a team with Ilyana Rasputin. Like, if she could be redeemed, if she could be a friend, then why not Marrow? I get where he's coming from based on his perspective. And he knocks all of the girders that Beast and Joseph are setting up aside as he flies off. He's so 
furious. He idolized this team, and they're showing themselves to be less adult than him. In all fairness, most people are less mature than Sam Guthrie. That's true, in part because he's no quitter, so he cannonballs back just in time to stop Logan from killing Marrow in a berserker rage post-impalement. Remember, Cannonball's been spending a lot of time with Wolverine and Wolverine's solo title. They're pretty tight. And Sam is furious, and he gives the adult X-Men— I say this as if he's not an adult— he gives the adulter X-Men a thorough telling off. So this is how the X-Men deal with problems? Sick Wolverine on a kid so she's beyond anyone's help? What happened to compassion, to second chances? This wasn't just teaching Marrow a lesson. That was a cockfight. One of them could have been killed. If Logan didn't have a healing factor, he would have been it. I get it. Second chances are out of style this year. And this is the part where you remember that it was the team led by Storm who were straight up going to kill Havoc when he found them when they were in hiding. Yeah, and she's in fact the one that yells at Sam not to walk away from her while she's talking. And then as he does, she looks down and she realizes that she's stepped on and crushed the one plant to grow through the floor of this destroyed mansion. This is not a good look for Aurora, but it also kind of fits. Marrow pushes all of her buttons and everything that she's lost and everything that's gone wrong has put her in a very dark place. Meanwhile in Israel, Xavier's ex, Legion's mom, Gabrielle Holler, Israeli ambassador to either the US or the UN, depending on the week, writes to Senator Kelly and tries to convince him to to take action, or at least exert power, to get Xavier freed. And Sabra, the Israeli superhero who we've briefly seen before, comes up to meet Gabrielle at the window, and to tell her that the Mossad has discovered something about Magneto, a person Gabrielle has been researching for years. They've discovered that Magneto's identity of the Sinta Romani Eric Lenscher, that's just an alias. That's not a real person. That's a forgery by an infamous forger named Georg. We actually answered a question about this a few episodes ago. Unfortunately, in Georg's bedroom, Magneto has also found out that this identity has been found out to be a fabrication, and he um, kills Georg. This is not a compassionate Magneto these days. It fits that he's in his old red and purple outfit, actually. He is fully a villain. Apparently, he'd gotten the Eric Lenger identity to try to escape everyone who was chasing after him after he'd killed the killers of his daughter. And so uh, at this point, he says, fuck it, Georg's dead, Eric Lenger is no more, now I am just Magnus. He does not mention his actual identity of Max Eisenhardt, in part because that was a retcon later, but in part, I think, because he doesn't want to be a real person. He doesn't want to be just a dude. He wants to be Magneto, this magnetic force of mutant vengeance. I think it's not just that he doesn't want to be a real person. I think it's that he doesn't want to be the person who went through all of the trauma that he has, because at least to him, that person is a symbol of some degree of weakness. Yeah, I agree. And uh, it's interesting as well. There was a very recent issue of X-Men Red, as we record this, where Xavier talks about how he never actually knew Max. He never actually knew the real person. He only ever knew Magnus and Eric, and that he regrets that and is sort of hurt by that. It's, it's a fascinating look at the character's relationship. Ooh, yeah. Sounds it. Uh, Sabra and Gabrielle Haller, meanwhile, only find uh, the dead Georg and uh, Magneto nowhere in sight, but that dude is very much on the loose. Eric the Red no longer. I want to discuss what Sabra and Gabrielle do when they arrive, and the fact that Sabra announces them showing up at the house of this random dude by busting down an entire wall. Do you think she was auditioning for X-Factor? Like, I know she was supposed to be on the X-Men, uh, according to Scott Lobdell's plans, but that's a very X-Factor thing to do. I got nothing, man. Hmm. 
Ugh, Sabra. Enemy of walls, and uh, sometimes also other people in uncomfortable ways, depending on the writer. We're going to jump here over to Uncanny X-Men number 351, Hours and Minutes, written by Steve Siegel, with art by Ed Bennis, colors by Chris Sotomayor, letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Colia Fuse. This is Siegel's first work plotting and writing, or at least it's his first work doing that solo. Yeah, yeah, because he was the sole credited writer for number 350, but clearly Scott Lobdell had already partially written that issue. So this is the first time we get to see Siegel as just Siegel. Yeah, and I really, really like what we see of him. So we've got two main plot lines in this and the next issue, and I'm going to divide them up by plot line and by which plot line is primary and which, which issue. And this one is primarily Cecilia Reyes and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And this issue is phenomenal. This is what made me a Steve Siegel believer uh, as far as being an X fan. I already liked his other work, but this is good shit. So Cecilia Reyes wakes in the Xavier Mansion, or what's left of it, and this, this takes place during a single day. We see the passage of time through clocks and in various scenes and panels. And Cecilia wakes up at, at five or so in the morning, and she's going to head back to the hospital, explain what happened, and hope that they'll let her keep her job. And recaps for us what did happen en route, so just in case you missed the last arc. Yeah, I mean, specifically, she was at work, some Prime Sentinels busted in, she ran away, and she hasn't been back to work or her normal life since. And just as importantly, during this time, she was revealed to all of her co-workers as being a mutant, which none of them knew. Now, Cecilia's mutant power is at this point passive. In responses to threat, she generates a force field. That's it. And I, I think that's that's really important here, that, that she has very specifically a protective and non-threatening mutant power in context of how the rest of the world responds to her. She's, a, she's also a human-passing mutant. She is about as socially acceptable as a mutant can be. Very much so, yeah. The chief of staff at the hospital is, is reluctant to let her back, but ultimately agrees. Although he warns her, You being out, as it were, could attract attention. And if some supervillain comes to my hospital looking for you, then you become a threat rather than an asset. While I know this is a reference to something that was, was much more of that era, it feels real, real fucking timely right now as hospitals are literally being shut down by you know, misinformation and bigotry. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And to this story's credit, while it doesn't go into that specifically, it does at least talk about some of the intersectionality. Like, Cecilia is used to having been Puerto Rican in a white-dominated field, a woman in a male-dominated field, and this is just another thing on top of that. She heads to work, but immediately gets pulled out of an emergency appendectomy because the patient's parents don't want a mutant operating on their kid. And they know that she's a mutant because a member of her team told them. My team? But they were also so nice. She successfully saves a different kid's life, but is shunned by her colleagues at lunch, and then gets called into an emergency by a doctor who hated her even before she was out as a mutant. This time, it turns out, she's been called in specifically because she's a mutant, and the patient here is Pyro. He's got multiple gunshot wounds, but he's also on fire, and he can't turn it off. So, I was briefly confused about why Pyro was on fire, but he does mention here that he only manipulates flames, so I guess he was already doing fire stuff with maybe his flamethrower backpack when he was shot, and now he just can't stop manipulating the flames that were already there. But the bigger question I have is, where was Avalanche? Avalanche is like his bro-TP. They were, they were so tight. Why wasn't Avalanche helping? Avalanche might have been otherwise indisposed, or, you know, there's the long villain tradition of dropping your bro off at the, at the ER. Oh yeah, that's true, that's true. Although, also, also Pyro was brought here by the police, so it, it could well be that Avalanche was, was unable to stop them from capturing him. 
Although, also, when Pyro describes what he was up to, it's implied that he was acting solo at this point. Um, he had robbed a bank to pay a scientist who says he can take away mutant genes. Uh, yeah, that scientist will be a big deal in the future. And of course, the reason that's attractive to Pyro is not because he hates being a mutant, but because he has the legacy virus, the sort of AIDS allegory that's been around the X-Line for years and years. In fact, Pyro has been dying of the legacy virus for four and a half years worth of comics, and it'll be another three years worth of comics before he finally succumbs and dies. So Cecilia is able to use her powers to stay safe, to get the bullets out and close the wounds. She seems to have very tight control over them in this and only this scene. So that makes sense to me, because Cecilia deeply resents her power. She deeply resents being a mutant. She feels like it's a distraction from what she really wants to do, which is to be a doctor. And so I almost feel like when she's using her powers in sort of superhero-y environments, she's really blocking herself from using them well. But here, when they line up with what she actually wants to do, she doesn't even think about it. They're just another tool at her disposal, like a scalpel or forceps or other doctor words. And years later, we will see her learn to use them more deliberately in her practice of medicine. Now, she continues to do an attempt to do her job, and throughout this, we see Daredevil ducking in windows like a find-the-hidden-picture character. It's great. The thing is, this is actually a great scene. There's this wonderful montage of her just being this very firm, not tactful, but nonetheless very compassionate and effective doctor to all these different kinds of patients. And in the meantime, there's Daredevil in the background, like one of those Kilroy was here drawings. But usually upside down. Uh, true, yes. So ultimately, when she's by herself, Daredevil drops in the window for help with a bullet wound, and she initially assumes he's trying to recruit her to superheroism, as various X-Men have been attempting to do. In fact, he kind of does try to convince her to become a superhero. You shouldn't waste it, you know. Excuse me? Your gift. You shouldn't waste it. You're a doctor. A great doctor at that. Like I said, I was watching you. But? But there are a lot more doctors in the world than people with power of any kind. As a physician, you save lives one at a time, but, and I don't mean this in a boastful way, I've saved this entire city in one fell swoop before. Thousands of lives in a heartbeat. Okay, look. Of all superheroes, Matthew Michael Murdoch should be well goddamn aware that it is possible to be a superhero with a meaningful day job. I mean, he's terrible at balancing them. Yeah, but he still, you know, tries. Yeah. Uh, we actually also see this scene, or perhaps a second scene after it. Like, we mentioned the story takes place in one day, so it would have to be Daredevil coming back the same day. But anyway, we see Daredevil and Cecilia in the hospital with her treating him in Daredevil number 371 from right around the same time, written by Joe Kelly, the other ex-writer. It's really fun, that level of coordination. I actually read that scene. There's nothing new or different or exciting about it. It's just them having a different conversation about similar things, but it's just neat. I love the idea that he's that bad at things that he just keeps on you know, getting patched up, jumping back out the window, and immediately coming back with different injuries. Matt Murdock does get shot, stabbed, and beaten up more than most other superheroes. I mean, he doesn't have any physical superpowers. I mean, there's the sense thing, but uh, yeah, aside from that, it's true. Well, right, he doesn't, they, they're not physical, they're not, you know, strength and vulnerability, etc. They're sensory. Mm-hmm. Then Cecilia goes to check on Pyro, and Pyro talks her into loosening his restraints and immediately escapes, and Cecilia gets fired, this time for actual cause, and heads back to the Xavier School. Yeah, yeah, she's bitter, but she's also just resigned. I think she knew that it was going to be something soon, if it wasn't that. And that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 352 in Sin Air. Hit. 
This is written by Steve Siegel, penciled by Cully Hamner, Tommy Lee Edwards, Daryl Banks, Terry Dodson, J.H. Williams III, and John Cassidy, inked by Jason Martin, Tommy Lee Edwards, John Holdridge, Rachel Dodson, Mick Gray, and John Cassidy, colored by Steve Olive, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Albert Deshane. Holy shit, you did that in one breath. I did, and yeah, the issue acknowledges the ridiculousness of this. We've got a burst on the cover that says, featuring possibly the most artists ever on one title, which is not true, but this is, this is a rough issue visually oh yeah like there's no organization to it like you flip a page and it's a completely different artist with a completely different style it's very jarring it really really is i wish they'd at least split things up by plotline i mean i assume they weren't able to for whatever reasons i'm guessing just rush but um it's it's jarring and it's frustrating and and we've got such a wide range of different styles that it, it it just feels unhinged it feels disconnected and that's not to say that the artists aren't good. Like, they're all pretty good, especially Cully Hamner, who I only know it's Cully Hamner because that's the first name on the credits, and so thus presumably the first artist. Hamner's art is phenomenal. I wish I wish he did more X work, but he barely does any. Yeah, he's got a very recognizable style. I actually have um, a page of his question. Oh, you mean in the comic, the question, not a question he asked. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's a really good page. I've seen it. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I, oh, I love it so much. So meanwhile, in an airplane, which is, as we mentioned, drawn by an unsettlingly large range of artists, Scott is still recovering from having a bomb removed from his abdominal cavity on, you know, the floor of an abandoned mansion. And Jean is very excited about getting the fuck away. Um, all of her previous misgivings gone. We saw some of that in the previous, in the um, X-Men issues. I don't think we touched on that. Yeah, she was really wondering whether it was wise to leave. She was going back and forth, and it wasn't until she saw that giant television grid telling her that the Avengers and the FF were in fact alive that she felt like maybe things were turning around. Maybe they could just get to be people and relax and take a breath. As it happens, the people across the aisle are from the same neighborhood that Scott and Jean are moving to. Their names are Stacy and Chris Murphy. They'll be back, but they won't be relevant for a couple issues. Hence, unfortunately... This is not the only coincidence when it comes to, to who's on the plane. There are, there are two stowaways in the cargo hold. One of them is Sauron. We're not going to find this out for a while yet. He has nothing to do with this issue, but yeah, Sauron's there. Yeah, he's being shipped from the Savage Lands to Kevin Plunder, which is the name of Kazar. That's such a good name, Kevin Plunder. That's Kazar's real name? Actually, there was a previous Kazar from 1939 in Marvel Comics number one, whose name was David Rand. Uh, no relation to Iron Fist. Okay, that I can buy, but I, I'm sorry, I just, my brain cannot process the Lord of the Jungle being named Kevin. <laughs> Kevin the Lord of the Jungle and Carl the Executioner. I don't know why just like really prosaic names are so delightful in superhero comics. It's not just really prosaic names, it's really trendy prosaic names. Okay, so like these days it would be Ashley, but it ends in a GH. Sure. Anyway. Anyway, yeah, so Sauron's in the cargo hold. We're not going to find that out for a while. You can forget it for the rest of this this episode, except, you know, maybe just like remembering it in the back of your head will entertain you, in which case go right on. But there's also some kind of psychic entity there, and it is freaked out and maybe homicidal. It gives Gina migraine, and... She's not the only one reacting to it. Some random guy is is just absolutely freaking out because somewhere because someone is in his head and he's yelling, you know, they're here and that they they want him back. And between that and the turbulence of the flight, the passengers on the plane are starting to freak out. And this is starting to overwhelm Jean. Her telepathy is active because she's looking for Professor Xavier, who's still missing at this point, but this was not what she turned that telepathy on for. 
Right. And she basically had it, you know, broad spectrum open and then everyone in the plane started panicking. This issue does a really good and really interesting job exploring Jean's telepathy. And in general, I feel like the start of this run is very, very strong in in both comics for her. I agree, yeah. And uh, the plan to have the Phoenix stuff get more and more foreshadowed, we see that in this issue too. As she's seeking out for Professor X, like sending her telepathy out in all directions, she ends up uh, telepathically taking over the minds of various birds who are around to extend its range geographically, which is cool and weird. But again, birds, phoenix, it all fits together symbolically. But like, you know, subtly. I had a moment early on reading this where I assumed that it was Mystique who was being talked about, who was just switching from bird form to bird form. Oh, I did too! I I think probably because we've both watched X-Men Evolution, where she just keeps turning into a bird all the goddamn time. Like, that's how she ends conversation. She's like, fuck you, I'm a bird, and flies away. Speaking of Jean's powers, I really appreciate that she and Scott having long telepathic conversations weirds out their very normal neighbors. Like, they have totally forgotten how to interact with normal people, and it's great. It's really fun, and it's especially fun because their future new neighbors are just so agonizingly normal. They are. Oh my god, they really, really are. So Scott is not doing so well with the turbulence, given the the recent extensive abdominal trauma, and Jean goes off to find aspirin, and at that point, Advanced Idea Mechanics shows up. Yeah, you know, the evil mad scientist organization that sort of dress up like beekeepers, they show up by attaching their little tiny science aircraft to the plane to, like, board and and hijack the plane. The narration is bonkers, and I really enjoy it. It is a crow of ill portent crafted by minds that consider themselves the modern equivalent of Da Vinci at his zenith, though far more evil than Da Vinci, to be sure. Far more evil than Da Vinci, indeed. I love Steve Siegel's narration. Like, Kelly and Siegel work so tightly together that it, it, their runs kind of blend together in some ways. But if you hear narration like that, you can be damn sure that that is Siegel Siegeling his hardest. Later on, he is going to write a series called House of Secrets. I don't know if that's his best-known work, but it's definitely the one I know him best from. House of Secrets is phenomenal. They came out with a a big hardcover omnibus of the whole series a number of years ago, and I treasure that thing. It's so intensely 90s, but, like, that's not a bad thing. It really captures a part of the era that you don't often see. Like, not just Mountain Dew and snowboarding, but just something about the Gen X-y, spooky ennui. It's just wonderful. Now, AIM is here because they want something on the plane, but the scientist transporting it says, well, he's rigged it to explode if they try to remove it at this altitude— And then abruptly, everyone on the plane flashes back to their most troubling memory. Yeah, the art is incredible. Everybody's face just melts from left to right or right to left into this vision of their greatest trauma. And some of these are characters we've never seen before. So we know that, for example, Stacy, for Stacy, it's finding out she has cancer and subsequent dysphoria post-mastectomy. For Chris, it's finding his mother dead on the kitchen floor. For the AIM dude, it's burning his face off in a lab explosion. For Cyclops, it's Phoenix dying on the moon. Interesting, interesting. I would have also thought it would make sense to have it be losing his son uh, after Apocalypse infected Nathan Christopher with a techno-organic virus. There are a number of moments I could see it having been. He's had kind of a shitty life. I mean, he's a Summers. Well, and a Marvel protagonist. Doesn't go well for them. True, true. So it's just chaos at this point. Everybody's all messed up, distracted by this entity and by the, you know, hijacking the hijackers in their beekeeper suits. Um, Scott feels like he should be doing something, but 
he's really severely injured, and he, he doesn't know if using his powers is going to make things worse, or if he even really can at this point. And Jean, who, unnoticed because she was up from her seat at the time, heads down to the cargo hold to try to see what's going on. She finds a big metal box, and it's not the one full of Sauron. Um, this one is is full of an entity. It's just, oh god, just such an X-Men word. It's full of an entity that has memories of being torn from another dimension and tortured by scientists and then imprisoned in an explosive box where we find it now. AIM comes in and uh, figures that the best way to get around this explodey altitude trap is to just force the plane to land, at which point it starts to, at which point the little AIM spaceship attached to the side of the plane explodes and spirals off into the distance and gives us some really weird narration. Well, it comes detached, and the wing of the plane hits it, destroying the aim craft and damaging the wing of the plane. Oh, right. Okay, so maybe the narration makes a little more sense? I don't know. On most days, it is a superior form of mass transportation. But in this moment, it is a condor that strikes a cockatoo. The smaller bird, though more attractive, is wounded. Fatally wounded. Cockatoo? What in the name of Kevin Kazar plunder? I think... In this issue, you have to imagine the narration is read by Sir David Attenborough. Oh, yeah. The word cockatoo is much less silly, yet still whimsical when he says it. Back in the cabin, Scott tackles one aim dude, and the pilot takes out the other with a fire extinguisher. Down in the cargo hold, Jean punches out a third. Um, she doesn't want to rile up the entity by using her powers so close to it. I do enjoy that Scott and Jean are so committed to just being normal people that they're just sort of die-harding their way through this hijacking. Well, Jane isn't committed to being normal. She's in the cargo hold with this extremely volatile psychic entity. I'm still impressed that she, like, punches a dude right through his science helmet. Like, the faceplate shatters. That's intense. Yeah. No, again, this is this is a fun Jean issue. As the people in the plane start panicking more and more, because the plane may be about to crash, Jean figures, well, there's only one thing to do. And she talks to the entity, telepathically. She pushes past the limits in her mind, changing becoming something larger and more powerful. There's that phoenix foreshadowing again. And as she mentally holds the explosive trigger in check, a tormented entity that has never seen an earthly bird takes flight like the most graceful of doves, instilling peace of mind in lives desperately in need of it. The entity has feared and hated humans for things they have done to her, but in this moment she senses their admirable qualities, their quiet, heroic nobility, and in that moment, she too feels a part of their flock. Enough so to sacrifice herself for the greater good of the many, willing to knowingly return to her prison in order to ensure their survival. And indeed, that's what happens. The entity goes back in the box. And when the plane lands, that box is picked up by Canada's very trustworthy governmental organization, Department H. Oh shit. Ooh, yeah, they immediately realize they should tell Logan that Department H is active again, and Scott assumes this will have to wait till they're back at the mansion because, you know, fucking X-Men. But Gene remembers that telephones exist. Side note, Steve Siegel was actually writing the Alpha Flight comic of the time, in which an exceptionally shady Department H was running and manipulating Alpha Flight. It all ties together. They were doing a lot of books, both of them at this point. And we're never going to hear of or, or see the entity again, although that makes sense in context of it being carted off by Department H. But yeah, big psychic entity, always described with bird-like terms and uh, quite fiery. There's so much Phoenix foreshadowing going on, I wish that plotline had gotten a chance to go somewhere. But meanwhile, at the Xavier Mansion, speaking of flying things that are kind of dicks sometimes, 
Angel shows up and is kind of a dick about not bothering to check in, and also the fact that Betsy teleported the two of them back to New York but left everyone else in Antarctica. Which, yeah, that was a jerk move, man. It's true, and as far as why he didn't come back sooner, in fact, he's here to say goodbye to Scott and Jean and he missed them, he's like, well, you know, me and Betsy got wrapped up with our normal life and our apartment, and the X-Men have no patience for this. Like, dude, I know domestic stuff is hard and takes a lot of time, but Warren, Jay and I make this podcast, which takes a forever, and we have functional domestic lives. Come on, what's your problem, Warren? Also, you're very rich and you could pay someone to keep track of your calendar for you. This does kind of fit, though. Like, I appreciate that with Warren's feathery wings having just come back, he's kind of back to being the old inconsiderate playboy dick. Not only feathery, but flaky. Marrow still loves him, though. She's watching from the shadows, as she often does. Because remember, she saw him as this vision of beauty and light during the otherwise horrific mutant massacre, and she's kept that obsession. You'll always be an angel to me, Warren, even if everyone else doesn't appreciate you. And, like, you almost get the impression that she's glad everyone else doesn't appreciate him because that makes him more of an outcast, like she is. It's times like this when Marrow becomes sadder than she is scary. And Sam gets a letter from his his on-and-off girlfriend, Tabitha, that's Boom Boom or Meltdown or Boober, depending on the era. And she says X-Force is heading to a gathering called Colossal Man, and he should join them, and so he just rockets off and does. After his disillusionment with the X-Men, I can't say that I blame him. So there we go. Two issues from Joe Kelly, two issues from Steve Siegel. We are now firmly in their runs of X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, and goddamn, these comics are good. I enjoyed the hell out of these, Jay. Yeah, they're they're really fun, really smart issues, and I would have loved to have seen the runs that these could have organically grown into. Well, we get to chronicle their rise and fall. We'll be there from start to finish. And punch some birds along the way. Frickin' birds. Frickin' cockatoos you know who are not cockatoos as far as we know our listeners and they've got questions i mean some of them might be cockatoos you don't know don't judge legit an anonymous listener asks on tumblr hey guys i was just introduced to the phrase canadian tuxedo i.e a denim shirt or jacket worn with jeans my thoughts went to my primary association with canada wolverine I tried to think of any occasion he had been seen wearing such an outfit. It seemed like it would be fairly in character. But unfortunately, my first-hand X-Men exposure is mainly the movies, TV shows, where outfits are obviously limited by animation budget, and Wolverine light runs of the comics or stories where he's primarily in costume. Has Wolverine ever appeared wearing a Canadian tuxedo? I am so pleased to report that yes, yes, he has. Frequently, in fact. Especially in the early days. Uh, You can see him in a very clear denim jacket, blue jeans, and possibly lighter denim collared shirt under that jacket. In Uncanny X-Men number 102, that's the issue where the X-Men visit Jean in the hospital after she sorta kinda becomes the Phoenix, and the angry Claremontian narrator yells at Wolverine so hard about not having any friends that he ends up throwing away the flowers he was going to give Jean. Now, Anonymous listener, you mentioned that you'd seen the movies, and you might not have caught this detail, but in the first X-Men movie, fairly early on, he is actually also wearing that getup. He is wearing jeans and a denim jacket, although that's under his leather jacket. Yeah, yeah, it's like a second denim skin. Adamantium skeleton, denim skin, that's our Logan. An Anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, have Arcade and Mojo ever encountered one another? They seem like they'd either have great synergy or be viciously competitive with each other. Okay, so... They have. In fact, we are about to get to a story where they do, I think, next episode. But not very extensively in the 616. They do overlap 
significantly in the ultimate universe, but the ultimate versions of both are completely devoid of everything that makes them engaging in the 616, so I don't necessarily recommend looking that stuff up. Oh yeah, I kind of remember Arcade just being some boring assassin, and like, what's Mojo's deal again? Uh, Mojo runs a television network, it's a reality television network. It's just a, a large man who runs a reality television network in, on Genosha. And Arcade is a basically power gamer who wants to hunt mutants. Oh, I mean, those are valid interpretations, but... No, they're not. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I like the 6161 ones better as well. Meanwhile, here's a thing that's not a question. Right, sometimes people send us things that are not questions. And this time, someone named Brian McKenwell sent us a link to a zine he made. And before I talk about this zine, I need to explain some poetry terminology so that you understand just how fucking mind-blowing this thing is. So a sonnet is a type of formal poetry. There are two kinds, Petrarchan and Elizabethan. That's irrelevant. A crown of sonnets is a series of sonnets that each begins with the final line of the preceding sonnet. Pretty cool. A heroic crown of sonnets is a crown of sonnets in which those first lines also combine together into a sonnet. And Brian, glorious monster that he is, has written a heroic crown of sonnets about the Summers family. And it's really good. I mean, it's it's all of them. Freaking Rachel Summers is there. Strife is there. Adam X is there. Look, Brian, I recognize that we don't know each other, like, personally, but I would love to be friends with you. You are precisely my kind of weird. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this and sending it to us. It's phenomenal. And also because Brian is, as we have established, fucking awesome. This whole thing is free online, and we will link to it in the visual companion to this episode so that you can read it as well. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode, sometimes also with links to cool stuff like that sonnet. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a minute to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, X-Force goes to off-brand Burning Man. And it turns out Arcade and Mojo totally know each other. But you already knew that. Yeah, he's being shipped from the Savage Lands to Kevin Plunder, which is the name of Kazar. That's such a good name. Kevin Plunder. <laughs> Somehow the- I just can't. What? <laughs> what the fuck? I just- What? <laughs> <laughs> did, did Kevin Plunder just break your mind? The fact that it's- it is Kevin Plunder is just it's really Kevin. funny. I'm sorry, give me a second. <laughs> It's the Lord of the Jungle, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, 